Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. This podcast is a proud member of Parents on Demand, a network of high-quality shows for families just like yours. Download our free network app on Apple and Android and listen to your favorite episodes on the go. You are listening to Episode 63, Healing After Birth with Jennifer Sommerfeld. Welcome back, my lovelies. I hope you're all having an amazing day, and it is as gorgeous outside where you are as it is today where I am. I am at home in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I got to say, it does not feel like January. It's a balmy 75 and breezy outside. It's like spring has sprung, except I don't see any budding on the plants out front, but it is, it's gorgeous and I'll take it. So I'm, I'm wishing you that weather if you are stuck in winter wonderland somewhere. So today's episode is healing after birth, but it is really all about trauma. So even if you haven't fallen pregnant yet, I want to encourage you to listen to this interview because it's my belief and my clinical observation that most of us experience and suppress trauma at some point in our lives, myself included. If your brain is saying, but we haven't had trauma, please not today. We're not pregnant yet. I really, really encourage you to keep listening. The suppression you're experiencing right now, if your brain is saying that, usually comes as a coping mechanism that serves us very well while surviving the initial insult, but then it can become the very thing standing in the way of what we want, even conceiving, whether that's for the first, second, or third time. And my guest today, uh, we talk about this at length, about how our bodies are really just trying to protect us and some of the off-putting things that they do after we've experienced trauma. Her name is Jennifer Sommerfeld. She holds a Master's of Arts in Counseling and Psychology, and she has nearly two decades of experience in the maternal health and psychology fields. In addition to being a counselor, Jennifer has also been a childbirth advocate, a maternal educator, a doula, and a midwifery apprentice, and a published writer. She's also a mother of three and the founder and creator of the Healing After Birth program, where she uses her expertise and her voice to advance the dialogue on motherhood, mental health, and healing. And that's really what we do in this interview today. We talk a lot about the brain and how it works in terms of trauma, and then how there's different lenses of which to view healing, whether that's through the physical body, the mental, emotional body, and even we touch on the spiritual bodies as well. And I really feel that the book that Jennifer has written could be used by anyone to work through any type of trauma, even if it's not a birth trauma per se. And if you feel like trauma is perhaps blocking your fertility, I really encourage you to pick up a copy or work on this book with a trusted therapist or support person in your life because energy patterns tend to attract their likeness. And I really want to encourage you to transform these patterns so that you can go on to have a trauma-free birth for you for your sake and for your baby, because we are their lifeline. And birth is this fractal that sets the trajectory and the tone for the rest of their lives, as well as our initiation as a parent. 
and our babies feel our emotions and experience our thoughts. And that's just so important and gives me a little bit of awe to think about that connection. And I do think that that connection is there in all of humanity. And by taking this step to address your own trauma, that you can actually start to heal the world. So the more responsibility you can take for your mental health now, the healthier child you will have, even if he or she is not yet here in physical form. And if you've been lucky enough to have experienced birth already, I really want to encourage you to listen because we talk about many of the indicators that could be pointing towards having some trauma in your birth that you may not even be aware of or how it's so common for shame to make us compartmentalize our stories, as Jennifer says, so that we're only telling the good. And I think that it is really important to share the good, bad, the ugly, and everything in between, because that is, after all, the human experience. So on to the show. Thank you for coming on the show, Jennifer. I think the work you're doing is so important, not just for women, but really for society at large, especially since birth is this fractal that sets the tone for the rest of our lives. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me, Hillary. I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation with you. And like, I just love your choice of words already. <laughs> Sets the fractal. <laughs> this is, is going to be great. <laughs> yes, like mine's. I, I enjoyed reading your book very much, which we're going to bring little snippets to the listeners and hopefully entice them to be readers because I think your book is small but mighty for sure. How is it that you became interested in this type of work? I don't think little girls dream and say, hey, I want to be a birth crusader. Yeah, no, I didn't dream that. <laughs> I actually, you know, as a little girl and a teenager and a very young adult, I didn't want children. And I obviously knew nothing about the milieu of birth and uh, how much of that is about um, what I would call womanhood. And I remember at the time having a conversation with a father of my three children before I had conceived, you know, just having those lofty conversations that you have when you're dating, like, do you want children? <laughs> those kinds of conversations. And I remember saying to him at that time, you know, maybe I'll have children, but I'm in grad school right now, and I think I should be the provider, and we should flip the roles, and you can stay home with the kids, because why is it that the mother and the woman have to stay home with the kids? And I don't really buy into that. And so I think that would work out for me, all right, but I'm going to focus on my career. And I was 20, I think, at the time, 20, 21. And I remember him saying, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll get a golf cart and I'll just take my kids. We'll go <laughs> golfing all day long. <laughs> 20-some-year-olds, right? <laughs> yeah, clearly no idea of real parenting, right? None, none, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to do what I want to do and, and live this hoity-toity life and just, um, you know, tote my kids along with me. And I was like, that's a great idea. And that was the end of our conversation. It was like, okay, that's done. You know, at that time, I can't even say that I identified as a feminist. I don't even know if I knew what that word really meant, except I just knew that I didn't want to take on that role of domesticated motherhood. 
And so very soon after that, I unexpectedly found myself pregnant. And, you know, this opened up the door to what we're obviously going to be talking about. I want to preface that by saying that I was I was an athlete. I was a college-level athlete, and then I was studying in the field of sports psychology at that time, which now is performance psychology in the Department of Kinesiology. So I have had a passion. I've always had a passion towards peak performing, like a determination, a deep determination to excel, and our physiology. And so it was a very natural transition, I guess you could say, when I discovered that I was pregnant, I remember just sort of, here we go, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to succeed at this. <laughs> and, and that was all driven out of my own unprocessed wounds of my past. And, you know, I didn't want to have to fail or feel Let's just say that I didn't want to have to feel. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, so I, I really took it on as another type of performance. And I prepared for my first pregnancy in those ways. I transferred the knowledge I had from preparing for a big physical event. And I just saw birth as another physical event that I needed to prepare for. So I used some of those skills such as mental rehearsal and self-talk and, you know, prepping my body, all those kinds of things. But I know that we're not really here to talk about birth. Um, so I don't want to, I, I don't want to keep going down that trajectory if that's not um, helpful. But that's, that was what gave birth to what now I would say, as you said, a birth crusader. It really it really opened up my world. And there was this world unbeknownst to me at the ripe old age of, I guess at that time I was 22. Sorry, time is blurred. <laughs> and I feel like I've lived multiple lifetimes in such a short period. But, um, you know, at that time, I had no conscious understanding or knowledge or awareness of what was behind this curtain. And this is the curtain of pregnancy, childbirth postpartum, motherhood, identity, all of that lives behind this invisible curtain that I don't think many of us understand until we actually go through it. And so there is this separation that I, I understood. And, you know, like most people, when you're pregnant for the first time, there's this initiation of, yes, I get to finally read what to expect when you're expecting. And, um, <laughs> is still out there. And so I have to say, I was very excited to be a part of this initiation. And when I was reading that book, I experienced so much terror. It's like, what is this? And uh, I realized that I couldn't continue to read this book because that fear was overwhelming me. And I thought I was basically walking into a landmine and this was going to be a horrifying experience. And Lo and behold, I happened to, I wasn't even granola crunchy holistic back then. And I started to get into food and nutrition. And so I was shopping at an organic food store and there was a bookstore there and somebody said I should read Spiritual Midwifery. So within a very short period of time, I was introduced to these juxtapositions, right? These 
incredibly different perspectives and paradigms of birth and what a mother's experience is as they move through it. And so I just want to add one more piece to, you know, what fired me up as a birth crusader. <laughs> I'm going to totally <laughs> claim that word. <laughs> you should, you should. I took it upon myself. And I think this was because of my deep, intimate connection with my, my body's capacity to perform athletically. And so I had this intimate relationship with my own physiology and pushing it to its limits, right? So birth was like the ultimate limit. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. And as I was preparing for that first experience at eight months pregnant, I made a very self-directed choice in which I, I switched caregivers and, and moved away from my OBGYN and my medical provider and hired a um, midwife to attend my first birth. It's pretty unusual for a 20-some-year-old to you know, not know anything about this field, have never had a conversation with anybody about midwifery, need alone home birth, and to have made this drastic change at eight months pregnant. And that change has forever shifted the course of my or trajectory, right, of my path and my passion. So I will say that I had an incredibly empowering birth experience with my first child that um, set the tone. And I was quite um, euphoric. I felt incredibly powerful. I felt like I could take on the world. I felt like every woman and every family needed to know about this. They needed to know that our bodies can not only conceive and carry um, life that we can give birth in these ways and feel completely elevated. And so I was um, a bit of a birth Nazi in the, in the beginning years because I was so passionate about the fact that I saw something behind the veil that was never informed, I had never been informed about. And so many of us aren't informed about. And I felt like it was my duty to inform people. And so that was a long time ago, because my um, son now is uh, 18 going on 19. So like 20, almost 20 years ago, right, I was pregnant. And then it's a long winded answer. But and then <laughs> I, um, I found myself pregnant again. Um, so you will learn that I have the opposite where I've, I've had unplanned, unexpected pregnancies. And I was pregnant again, and my first was only 10 months old, and shit hit the fan. And I was washed over with um, uh, my first real relationship. I would say it's my second relationship to depression, but the, the first time that I really acknowledged it in myself that I was not okay. And so that was a really rough time. But of course, during that time, I was still so passionate to consume information about this territory of birth that, again, I felt I had been robbed from and that so many of us are robbed from and that we're only given this one perspective, at least at that time. So I continued to research and read and, and consume information and stories and, and um I came across a book, two books, Birth Without Violence and um, Immaculate Deception by Suzanne Arms. These are old books. Like these were written in the 70s. So I guess it's not that old, but <laughs> um, older books, right? And as I was reading through these books, something happened in my heart. And so my heart exploded. And even now I can feel 
the tension and the pain that I was experiencing as I was uncovering these hidden aspects of what we now call obstetrical violence, but we didn't have that terminology back then. And so there was story after story of how many mothers were coming into their birthing experience in these horrific ways in which both the baby and the mother were experiencing violence. But we had normalized this as if this is, this is the rite of passage, is that you're going to experience this. And that's kind of what, um, what to expect when you're expecting my experience of that book. So I'm not slamming it, but my experience of that book was that, you know, it, it created such a fear in me that I was going to be initiated into motherhood in these ways. And those ways included a lot of intervention and protocol and tactics that could be perceived as and or fully overtly experienced as violence. And this roaring being inside of me kind of like blew open my heart and blew open my passion because I just instinctively knew this was wrong. There was like this, this sense of there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong with the fact that we're being initiated as mothers in ways that are, um, in my opinion, systemically violent. And so I don't mean to be graphic about that, and I, I should put a trigger warning in our conversation. But for me, uh, I felt incredibly moved and motivated and inspired and enraged to wake up and to wake others up to this disharmony that was happening that I even way back then was linking to so much of the challenge that I'm sure as mothers we're experiencing in that postpartum period. I think that's when I became a birth crusader. <laughs> well, and thankfully that you you followed those heart-bursting moments because, I mean, I, I refer to those as openings pan, in opening Pandora's box. Hmm. It's like these things that perhaps you've agreed to if you believe in reincarnation or maybe they're, you know, fate, however you want to call it, on your trajectory in this life. And once you see it or feel it, really, rather, you can't unfeel it. Hmm. And it's it's almost more painful to ignore it um, when that's really your calling. I mean, I, I had several of those myself. I don't think anybody says, hey, I think I should be an acupuncturist, right? It's a very odd career to have. <laughs> um, hmm. And oddly, you and I had the same degrees. I had a degree in physiology and kinesiology and thought I would work on on athletes my whole life. And I was enamored with human performance and the universe had other ideas. Hmm. Um, but and just to touch on what you were saying about the what to expect, I do feel like that is one of those like old indoctrinations that's at least for the women living in the West is getting you ready to enter into a fear-based medical system. And it's it's almost like, oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna plant this seed for you over here. So when you show up in our office and we want to control you with fear that you're you're, you've already kind of been indoctrinated into that. You know, it's like the irony being what to expect, right? Yeah, that is so true. Yes, many of our listeners have not conceived yet, but I do feel it is important to have conversations about the realities of pregnancy and birth and parenting because not to put the horse before the cart, but really so many women can get fixated 
um, and men for that matter too, of I want a child, I want a child. And I think that it's a, a conscious conception really looks at everything. It looks at all of these facets and not that you have to be perfectly prepared because you never are for, for birth or pregnancy and all the beautiful things that come with it or parenting. Um, but to just have some kind of idea of where to go when these things, if these things pop up for you, right? Because it's, it's, it's bound to happen in one part of the journey. I feel like if you, if you don't have trouble conceiving, then oftentimes I see something, you know, maybe less than savory pop up in pregnancy or birth and vice versa. Some women get the trifecta, unfortunately. Mm. And I, can I interject? Um, Yes. That's and and exactly what you're saying. I will I will often have this conversation with my clients or in some of my teachings, in that you know the 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 world of birth it's the initiation into motherhood, and I believe that we're initiated along the entire continuum. And some of us face that initiation right at the beginning in in our desires to conceive, and then we're faced with the challenges of not being able to conceive or control that process. And so right away, you're being initiated. And some of us experience it in um, multiple losses. Even if if it's a miscarriage, some of us experience multiple miscarriages and we're being initiated. And some of us experience it with a complicated childbirth. And then some of us experience it in labor and delivery with um, challenges or the birth experience not going the ways that we had dreamed and hoped. And then some of us experience it in that postpartum period in which we're utterly sleep deprived and we're overwhelmed with uh, anxiety or depression symptoms and, you know, life is spinning and we don't know how to put our foot back on the ground. And so, that whole, I, I think if we look at it as an, an, an energetic continuum in which we're setting the wheel in motion, the minute we set that intention to open up to this possibility of bearing life, we, we are opening ourselves up to be initiated. And, and I think it's, I think that part of the challenge that we face, especially in, you know, the Western culture of fast paced live in survival, um, stress response as a norm and, you know, be incredibly left dominant society in which it's about productivity and thinking and, um, consumption is that we are not actually prepared, nor are we encouraged to open up to this world of initiation, which is very much this this mythical terrain in the right hemisphere of expanded consciousness and non-linear reality. We're not comfortable there. And so there's this tug of war that happens. And I think, you know, I'm just kind of pulling all of these pieces together, and and this is not um, peer-reviewed scientific information that I'm offering right now. This is just kind of lived experience uh, and through observation and storytelling. But my sense is that in the initiation, we're being pulled in. We're being pulled over. We're being pulled through discomfort. We're being asked to surrender. And that word is so challenging for so many of us. (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a loaded word when you're trying to conceive and this idea of relinquishing control and surrender, 
makes you want to scream. But the irony being like that is the most valuable skill set you can call upon for birth and parenting. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it connects us to the wisdom within and, you know, whatever that might be for somebody. And so just as you're saying that, I'm imagining like there's this uh, neuroscientist, Ian McGilchrist, and I strongly recommend Googling his work. And there's a RSA video that he has done about both the left and the right hemispheres. And it's, it's really profound because when we surrender to the right hemisphere, and this I like better than the idea of surrendering. What am I surrendering to? Let's just keep it in the body, okay? So <laughs> let's say you're surrendering to the right hemisphere, which we know governs the world of creativity, the world of expanded consciousness, the world of nonlinear reality, timelessness, right? All of these places that we don't always value collectively, socially, but actually, if we can let the left serve the right, hemisphere, then we actually are living this path of like, it's like a type of faith, like you're just living a path of surrendered to serving this wisdom within and this expanded consciousness and like this instinctive knowledge, it's just can be so beautiful. And he outlines this so incredibly well in his work. It's like his masterpiece. So I'm just imagining um, as we're talking about this beginning point of initiation in which you're working with women um, who want to conceive and desperately want to conceive and that this is the starting point of their initiation in which they're being asked to surrender and to go within to these places that are going to be scary and uncomfortable and out of their control because we actually can't control that conception with ego. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, after a decade of this for sure. And hmm. there's thankfully still mystery with that conception. And yeah, the initiation absolutely starts at the beginning as soon as you make that commitment or that decision to become a parent. And I think that it's missed and it's, it's only in hindsight that women see that or, you know, and there is that initiation at birth of becoming a parent and of how you will mother. And, you know, that's not spoken about at large in our society either, which is why I'm so glad that your work does that because I feel like it your ability to change the world for the better largely comes about by how you parent and what, because your kids are just absorbing everything that you do. And if you can come from a place of love and compassion for all involved in the beginning, it's, that's a much better fractal to begin with, right? You know, surrender is a really charged word, but so is trauma. (laughs) (laughs) And you have been brave enough to write a book about traumatic birth. And I feel like that's a word or a phrase that you need to maybe define what it is because so many people are uncomfortable with that word because it either A, triggers them or they immediately go to how much trauma there is in other parts of the world or large things like war. And they really are reluctant to call maybe their own birth or some of their own experiences trauma, Um, especially when you do have a child in front of you and you just feel like you should be grateful for what you have and kind of stuff down these emotions that are telling you, you know, hey, this was traumatic. Like we need to address this. So what's your 
definition of a traumatic birth so that someone listening knows if they've maybe perhaps um, gone through that or how to spot it or prevent it? Yeah, you're right. That word is loaded. And <laughs> and sometimes I question, I mean, A, I'm not surprised that this is this is the territory that I swim in, given the conversation we had about what initiated me. Clearly, what initiated me was a passion to understand trauma, because that's what I was seeing. And we didn't have the language for it back then. And um, okay, so I'm going to get to the definition, but there's a bit of a preface to it. I also uh, had to come to understand the word trauma through my own experience of coming to terms with my post-traumatic stress disorder slash symptoms, which when I could finally label it and understand it through the lens of trauma, I felt so much power. So information is powerful. And being able to relate to these concepts and to these definitions, for example, can be incredibly empowering because we can start to understand what's actually happening to our physiology, to our neurology, and the impact that that's having on our mental, emotional, and relational health. So for me, finding and being validated through new information that, and this was now going on nine, nine, ten years, it again wasn't talked about. Like we're just coming into this era of trauma-informed care. Like within the last few years, it's kind of exploding, but uh, we still have a long ways to go. I think you and I are about the same age. I'm about to turn 40. And I remember I did EMDR when I was 21. And that was like cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, that would be. Ago, right? Yeah. That was a, a new therapy that was experimental. But you're right. There's no languaging. Like even the word consciousness is having this conversation with somebody the other day. 10 years ago, if you said consciousness is someone, they would mean they would look at you and say, you mean like, am I awake? Or and we, now we laugh because it's got a different metaphorical meaning of being awake, but it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So how do you define something that doesn't exist for you in languaging, right? Well, that is so fascinating that you say that because how we defined it is we diagnosed through the lens of mental health disorders or mental illness. Right? So we have all of these labels that come through the DSM, and this is how we were defining it. This, this is, I want to say that some of this is my personal point of view of weaving together many different fields of study. So this is not readily available conversation, but just okay. sort of picking up what you just said, if we don't have the language to explain it, then we're going to explain it through this other lens. We know we have the symptoms, and we know that the symptoms now are being linked to a certain label, and we give that label power, and then we have a diagnostic tool. But we're not actually giving rise to what's potentially contributing to the expression of these symptoms. For me, when I started to almost ravishly <laughs> consume information on um, trauma theory, and the neurophysiology that was coming out at that time about trauma, I completely changed my paradigm and the lens through which I was seeing my own struggles with mental illness. So I found that to be incredibly powerful because once again, it linked me to my physiology, which then I felt like I had some control. I had some power to do something about this. And so this opened up my healing journey. 
So how I understand trauma and a lot of the, the kind of modern definition of it is that trauma is what we experience, is the result of having experienced an event to which we felt horrified, terrified, utterly out of control to change it or do anything about it. We couldn't necessarily escape it. And it activated our survival stress response. And trauma is when we're trapped in our survival stress response. Two things are important to consider when we're speaking about trauma through this perspective. One is there's a physiological, a physiological and neurological reaction going on that we can't actually control, right? This is happening instinctively because we have a nervous system that is created in such a way that generates this response to any threatening situation so that we can mobilize, so we can either fight or flight, right? Run away. We know that when we can't mobilize, then we actually immobilize. We shut right down. We go into freeze. All of this is intended for our safety and protection. That's brilliant. The problem is, is that we have another component uh, as, as the human organisms that we are. We have a psychological component that traps us in that stress response in which we have a really hard time discharging and disarming the system so it can go back to homeostasis. So two things, there's the physiological response and there's psychological response. The psychological response is often the piece that generates an enormous amount of suffering because we, because our brain is constantly crafting meaning. It needs to create meaning. And this obviously enriches our life as a human being. And it needs to understand and so we have this, horif- this, this, this highly stressful, maybe it was terrifying, maybe we perceived it as horrific, but whatever it was, our system responded in such a way that it, it considered it to be a threat to our survival or a threat to our family survival, our loved ones, right? Either could be a threat. And at the same time, we linked to that experience an associated thought perception, belief about what was happening to us and what that meant. So when we understand trauma through this, or when we under yeah, when we understand, let's say, disorders, or what I would prefer is like a disorganized system through this lens, we can start to see how we might be able to restore it back into Um, its natural state of homeostasis. Because our system, our nervous system, which includes our skull brain, our heart brain, our gut brain, our whole, and then our whole central nervous system, spinal cord, all that kind of stuff, because that system is intelligent, it's innately intelligent. And we know that it, in fact, wants to store traumatic, stressful information, stressful material. It wants to store it in an adaptive response. In other words, it wants to take that information, take what it needs from that information, but then store it in episodic memory or store it in a place where it's no longer wrecking havoc on our system. It's like, okay, you can rest now. Everything's over. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. I got the information that I needed out of it. 
and now you can go back and rest. Because we have a thinking brain, a neocortex, it gets in the way. It gets in the way of birth. It gets in the way of orgasm. It gets in the way of relationships. It gets in the way of conception. It gets, right? it gets in the way. We could even say it gets in the way of our death process. Right. So you're referring to the, the thought that is then linked with that. And then that's one of those oftentimes negative thoughts that ends up on repeat in our mind, right? It can, plus the image, feeling, sensations, right? We store all of it, smells, all of those kinds right. of things. But when our, I'm talking about the neocortex, the part of our brain that, that can become reflective and self-aware, right? Just like it is because we have this neocortex that we can be self-reflective. And in that act, this is where we can get looping in these highly stressful traumatic experiences in which our system then perceives it as if we're constantly in it, we're reliving it. When we're frozen in, in a high stress response, or we're living in what's considered to be high beta brainwave frequency, which is the survival response, our organism is actually not, and you probably know all of this, but, <laughs> but I'm sharing this with your listeners, but our- Yes, absolutely. They only like to hear me say it so many times. They need it in different languaging. This is okay, perfect. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's not intended to live in um, high beta stress response for a long period of time. It's meant to be a short burst of energy so we can mobilize ourselves, protect ourselves, fight back, roar, shake it out, and then sleep it off, and then know I'm innately safe again. But the beauty and the beast of our brain, <laughs> right, is that it's so hard for us to get out of the way for our instinctive biological system to do that. And so we remain trapped, and this creates an enormous amount of suffering, but it also deteriorates function of our system. And so because we now have these beautiful technological advancements of you know, fMRI machines that can track what's going on in our brains, we now know that when a system is trapped in a, a, a trauma response, that certain parts of our brain are compromised. And the parts of our brain that are compromised are the parts of our brain that actually help us sort out the material and store it effectively and adaptively. So we also know that if there's a prolonged, you could just imagine that there's this prolonged deterioration due to being trapped in a stress response and not knowing what to do to discharge that energy and information. Many of us were not taught how to move that material, how to feel that material. It overwhelms us and we get afraid of it and then we adapt to it and this is how we shut down or dissociate from it. And so then all that energy and information, all of those stress chemicals are wrecking havoc on our system, deteriorating brain function, creating what we call incoherence, or a disorganized system, which then results in mental unrest or mental illness or the inability to manage our emotional being. And so we are overruled by felt sensations and emotions, and we are completely bombarded by stressful 
mental cognitions. And then we're trapped in what we perceive to be this horrific ball of energy that is completely deteriorating our health from our mental health to our physical and immune health. And then I'm going to add to this that what we know is that if we are in a prolonged stress response and that we're mobilized, meaning all of that energy is going to our extremities so we can fight and run, and it's moving away from our internal organs because they're not considered to be as important, that we know that it not only um, impacts digestion, but it actually shuts down our reproductive system. And it shuts down our reproductive system for a reason. It is not time to reproduce if our organisms are in a state of survival and stress. Exactly. I mean, that's, like you said, our, it's self-protective. Our, it wants to help us. It's just, that's right. it's stuck. And the longer it goes on, you know, you've got the reshaping of the hippocampus and the amygdala that govern emotional response. But we also know that you can undo that with mindfulness exercises and meditation in as little as 30 days. You can also see that on the MRIs, reshaping, regrowing gray matter. Mm-hmm. Thanks to neuroplasticity. Yeah. I think, yeah. We When I was in college, I remember the Brain Institute was just starting at University of Florida. And they, they at that point, they didn't even think that you could regrow brain tissue. That was, this is like totally sci-fi to understand that this has been happening for eons, right? And so much of it, it's not the stress response, but it's the it's that we're lacking the ability to create the relaxation response, right? Mm-hmm. Or how the techniques to get the trauma out of the soma. So what do you think helps discharge the stress impact from trauma in your body the quickest? Yeah, so let's look at it from those two lenses, right? There's the physiological impact, and then there's the psychological. And then I would like to add to, you know, to the psychological that there's the soulful, yes, the spiritual piece as well, because right now, um, it's very safe, and I'll answer your question, but it's very safe to talk about trauma through the lens of neurophysiology. And it's a wonderful way for us to enter into it, because we can relate to it, it's body, we can feel it. um, And yet, the pieces that we don't always speak about is that when we talk about trauma and healing, we need to approach it with such reverence because trauma fractures us to the core of our being. And for those of us who have lived with trauma and unresolved trauma, understand and know the depth of that feeling of being utterly fractured. And when we talk about being fractured, Now we're talking about more than just the psyche, like the psychology aspect, the cognitions. We're talking about something that is so much deeper that we experience as lived reality in our inner world. And I call that the soul. Um, But there's different language in which we could relate to that. So I just want to highlight that as well to give reverence to that. I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important. And I think more and more people are waking up to that oddly as more people move away from organized religion. And, and maybe that's because of the conversation of trauma and bringing it out and understanding if you have experienced it, you've more than likely experienced that spiritual fracturing that happens as well. You feel completely disconnected from source. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, that 
that's our core pain. For sure. That's why we do everything, right? Addiction, acting out. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it's all a road to get back to that place, right? It's just we don't really see it. That's right. And some of us have a very big cavern and some of us have a, a smaller one. And, you know, we're all working towards, I believe, bringing that together again so we can touch that place that has never, ever been touched by that trauma. So physically, how do we discharge that energy? <laughs> Coming back to that question. And, and it is really important that we do move that energy somatically. Because if you look at a mammal in the wild, for example, and they are under attack or threat of attack, and they mobilize, so they fight back or they run away and, and they escape and they, they realize that they have escaped, that they're alive or they play dead, they freeze, they completely are um, you know, catatonic and then the predator leaves them alone and, and is gone. And so this mammal has survived. What you'll note is, and this is Peter Levine's work, what you'll note, or Levine, um, is that that mammal will wake itself up through shaking. And then it will wake itself up through roaring and raging. It's like the last ditch effort of if that predator's around, I'm going to destroy them. And so that's an enormous amount of energy, right? Like you could just imagine this mammal lion or like a wee little fox or something, you know, like you could just imagine that they're going to all of that energy in their system is, is working together so they can roar and rage the loudest possible, scariest possible sounds and behaviors to viciously keep themselves safe. Okay. So then they do this and then they're safe. And then it's like, oh, okay, somehow their system perceives. And I think Stephen Poor just talks about neuroception. And I think that's what's happening. They, they're like, sending out an energetic vibe into their environment. And it's like, okay, the predator's gone. They've left me alone. Now I need to go into a comatose sleep. Right. <laughs> it's like when you cry your eyes out and then you're like, and now I need a nap, whether you're 40 or four. Totally. Right. right? So now I need to sleep because sleep is going to restore my system. And then when I wake up as a mammal, I'm okay. It's like I'm back in balance. Okay. So if we were to take that and mimic that as humans, there's a few challenges we're faced with. <laughs> so first of all, your box sitting across from you. <laughs> yeah, we don't. <laughs> we do not value rage in our culture. No anger, rage, and outbursts of rage. We are completely shunned, punished. Some of us, if we hurt, right? So the problem is, is that if you let that wild animal out, and it's in that much pain and terror, you can understand how we can um, have violence, right? Instinctively. So we're terrified of behaving in those ways. And we've learned very, very young, and we've been imprinted by this. So these are, these are intergenerational imprints, but we've learned very young that you swallow it. And if you can't swallow it, then you're going to behave poorly, then you will be punished. So what do we do with all of that energy? It makes so much sense why we're so afraid to actually feel the hugeness of what's coursing through our body. 
This is where mindfulness comes in and why it's so important. So simple things, simple <laughs> things that we could do if we're in an activated stress response or we are actually in the post-traumatic period, we can literally shake. So shaking is, is actually a, a very important tool to be able to integrate. We can twist a towel really, really tightly until we kind of feel like the, it's like our cells are starting to vibrate, right? Like we're shaking in the fascia. Like we're, sh we're just, <laughs> it's like we're not forcing it. It's like our being is shaking and we're just, we're going with it. We can um, push against a wall. We can dance. We could run, right? We can actually go for a run. We could maybe go to the gym and go box. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say yoga yet, you know? Because we need to discharge that energy, and 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 I feel like we need to look at like what does your body want to do? Does it want to shake? Does it want to move? We can move into the tears, but we need to move the rage. And so mindfulness comes in because we don't want to flip that lid. So Dan Siegel talks about this. In um, if you Google Dan Siegel hand brain flipping the lid, you'll get a good little video on this. So flipping the lid is when our prefrontal cortex comes offline. So our executive function is, no, is being compromised. And now we're being flooded with all of those emotional chemicals, and that's governing. And when we're flooded with that emotional chemical and we're just kind of like having a temper tantrum like a two-year-old, there's no rhyme or reason to it, right? We're just sort of like a sprinkler, <laughs> you know, you could imagine like a sprinkler and it's like we're sprinkling all of these stress chemicals and these emotional chemicals all over the place and it's just like spewing out of the top of our head. <laughs> okay. I, I don't mean to make light of it. Um, no, we, we have to have this humor about these things, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, we need to understand that our biology and our system has this intelligence and these are the different ways in which it's trying to restore itself. And so if we can cultivate the practice of being mindfully aware and attuned, if we can just ask the question, what am I noticing right now? The mere question of what am I noticing will bring that prefrontal cortex back online. Right. It activates the observer instead of run by our biochemistry. That's right. And so now we're having this little dance. You know, I liken it like a dance, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm noticing this sensation moving through my body and whoa, that's too much. And this is where we get into the window of tolerance. And again, Dan Siegel talks a lot about the window of tolerance, which is basically how much stressful information we can tolerate before we become dysregulated and it starts to wreak havoc on our health it deteriorates our health. And each of us have a different um, girth. Each of us have a different window of tolerance. So we want to be able to stay with that rage and understand that it is a chemical reaction that is going to peak and subside. That's it. And so most of our problem, most of our challenge is learning how to do that. Well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, just to interject, but most of the studies that I've read recently on stress have kind of said, you know, we used to think that there was bad stress and good stress or Ucrest, whatever they would call it. And now we understand that it's actually not 
the stressor, because how can one thing that's perceived as terrible be something that another perceives as good, that it all comes down to the person's perception of time. And if you understand this as having a beginning, middle, and end, rather than something that you're stuck in forever, you actually have a healthier biochemical response to it. You don't have as many of the more negative chemistry floating around in your body like cortisol, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting perspective on time. Yeah, but that's the that's the witness, right? Because it's in a that's sort of the right hemisphere. That's the mm-hmm. timelessness, right? But in timelessness. When you say that, it's not timelessness in terms of forever. It's understanding that you are so small in that vast ocean of the human concept of time, right? That's right. And that there is an understanding that there is a beginning, middle, and end of this sensation that I'm labeling as rage, anxiety, panic, stress, grief, pain, whatever we're labeling it as, right? It's the sensation that we are attaching meaning to. And it's the meaning. uh, And that meaning is usually passed down to us until we become conscious of it. It's the meaning that we're actually afraid of. And usually the meaning is, if I feel too much, I'm going to die. If I feel too much, I'm going to hurt myself or somebody else. If I feel too much, it's bad. Right. So we end up engaging in all kinds of behaviors that stunt our feeling. So that's right. When I was very angry in my twenties, I was a hell of a marathon runner Hmm. to the point of breaking my leg and being forced into sitting meditation, which was divine intervention for sure. But it was because I didn't want to feel myself. I was literally running for myself. But that can show up as eating or drinking or smoking pot or whatever it is that you do to check out, right? To not feel. Right. And look at how much more we need to check out because we're in such a culture of productivity and growth that is operating. It's like the whole paradigm is operating in a high beta brainwave pattern. It's operating in survival and stress mode at all times. And we're collapsing. <laughs> we are. I venture to say that I most of the patients that hit my door are stuck in fight or flight about 85% of their lives. I mean, do you have that same experience where you are in Canada? Oh, yeah. And the majority, of, it's like we're coming into this precipice of I don't know, a shift of some kind. And I'm not saying that because I read a lot of stuff on it. It's it's just a, I think that that could actually be true because the sense I get is this accumulation of pressure. It's like we've been in a pressure cooker, you know? You know, so it's like the generation before us, they had a bit more spaciousness. So the stressors were a little bit different and they weren't quite crouching in on each other as, as, as intense as it is now. And so if we look at the concept of intergenerational imprinting, intergenerational trauma or ancestral trauma, understanding it through the lens of, you know, this unresolved stressful material that has been held, gripped in that cellular memory. And now we're living in the time that we're living in with the speed and the productions that we do, you know, that we are, the consumption, all of it, the the pressure to exist in this very isolated, me-focused, 
individualistic, uh, consume at all costs environment, it's like the the nervous system, that window of tolerance is like, no, nah, I can't handle it anymore. We're done here. <laughs> you know? So everybody's popping out. <laughs> Yeah, do you, do you think that that's part of the collective though? Like, it, like there's a collective container as well as the individual, right? Yes. I mean, if we can, yeah, if we're going there on this conversation, I do. I do think it's a collective response. And I think we're processing it individually. And we're through that process where we're, we're pushed to these edges where we just can't handle it anymore. You know? So for me, it was like I couldn't handle one more adversity and lo and behold, I'm in a full-blown post-traumatic stress response. And, you know, my life as I knew it, totally shattered, fractured, lived with suicidal ideation on a daily basis and believed that there was no way out. Like I was p- completely consumed by the devastation that this had on my system. I think that many of us are having, going back to initiation, having these experiences that are challenging us in which we just can't contain it anymore in the ways that maybe our foreparents or those before could. And it's incumbent upon us, those of us that are actually being shaken up, where nothing is working anymore none of those adaptations are working anymore. And the suffering is getting to the point where um, it's just too much that uh, we are being forced in a way, you know, to do this work, to actually integrate, sift through, store, create a new story, create a new myth with all of this information that is held in what I think is this huge collective wound. Oh, I like that. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> no, I, well, I like that I, the idea of the collective womb. I've never heard it termed that way. Yeah. But. Well, both the collective womb, as, we, as we're piecing ourselves together for this birthing process, and this collective wound wound oh okay yeah yeah that we're sorting out and but both actually i've used both so that's really cool um you know are coming together and we are i think we are in this process of um dissolving and like you know just like kind of needing to go through the muck so that we can find our way and restore ourselves to these places of real health and liberation. I agree. And it's, it's a, you know, any growth is uncomfortable while you're in it. And I think that's why you see so many people turning up uncomfortable. And thank you for sharing your story mm. in just now. And then in, in great length in the book. And that's, it's a tough thing to be vulnerable <laughs> to an audience that you may never meet, let alone someone sitting in right in front of you. And you you actually talked a little bit about that in the book where you were you kind of tried to put yourself in the shame cave right you you were reluctant to share your story which is the root of all of this right no, none of us we're also scared to be vulnerable because we don't want to be judged and we're fearful of being ostracized from that little bit of community that we have left right that small connection that we're all grasping to and i just think that that's so important that women are opening up and sharing those stories and sharing that vulnerability and not in a way of look at me in a way of 
true compassion of I, I do understand and empathize with your pain and it is not just yours as an individual but as a collective and let's support one another through this and I think a lot of our listeners will come up against this you know because everybody has trauma I mean that's kind of my belief we're suppressing it on some level if we haven't dealt with it right and even because you've dealt with it once doesn't mean that it doesn't necessarily like pop up and say hello at an inconvenient time. Mm -hmm. How did you, how did you overcome this to share so eloquently in a time where other people would just want to hide in the shame cave? Like what advice do you have for someone that's wanting to get their story out, but is afraid to share? Thank you for, for noting that. And shame is quite the entity and blinds us often too, right? So it's, it's a, it's a fascinating terrain to experience. And, you know, I share my story and I think the deepest fear that I had in, and, and so just to, to qualify the story that I share in the book, which is, has to do with my third birth experience and the challenges and the terrifying challenges that I endured in the postpartum, perhaps was the beginning of the the real weakening, it's like it's chipping away at my window of tolerance, right? So these accumulated experiences can chip away at our window of tolerance. And and then we can have these other experiences later on, which kind of just shatters the glass, right? And so there were other experiences later on in my life after that birth that ended up shattering the glass that to which I was presented with the the, the real darkness and the post-traumatic stress symptoms. And that really instigated my healing journey, which then really instigated my desire to write this book. But I was most afraid, like most moms are, that my story is not relatable. This is just so ironic. You know, it's like... This is this is the shame cave, right? It's it's my story doesn't matter. My story is not relatable. My story is not horrific enough. My story is not it's not important. Everybody else's story is more important than my story. And yet storytelling is what kind of makes us human. Right. I mean that's why I do this podcast. I think it's one of like the last, you know, it's we use technology, but it's such an ancient tradition, right? And, and you have a podcast as well where you have these deep conversations and story. And I don't think that it's a mistake that more and more people are like, yeah, I'd rather listen to that than the radio. Like they're starved for story because we're all starved for connection, right? Yeah. So and, and so, of course, we're starved for connection because if we go back to that core wound, really, it's our attachments, we have a biological drive to attach in social bonds of love. You know, this is this like our biological system is motivated. So if we even got our brain out of the way, you know, our thinking brain, our egoic brain, our system would still be motivated to attach to um, our primary caregivers and our primary environment in the social bonds of love. Like love, not fear. <laughs> Yeah, the antidote to fear, love. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and and so this is our primary wound is that so many of us have not had that opportunity to attach socially in bonds of love, unconditional love, energetics of love. This is it. And I think story 
weaves us back together again because we can start to feel from that deep place within a connection, a sense of belonging, a meaning. Like my experiences in life are not just, they're important. You know, my experiences in my life, my, my trials, my tribulations, my traumas, my horrors aren't with not. There's meaning in it. I matter. I belong. Even in my ugly, I belong. So when I was facilitating a group uh, for the Healing After Birth program and a member of the group was sharing her story and was saying that she felt like her story didn't belong because of her birth experience, which happened to be somewhat similar to mine, similar enough that it activated this thing inside of me that had been laying dormant because I hadn't given it the time and attention and reverence and consideration. You know, I had that idea that it's over now, just get on with life, which so many of us do. And so her story woke up within me, this place where I had not sifted through my lived experience and my story, and I actually have not closed that. And there is tons of information there. And then I realized what was there was so much shame. And that shame prevented me from sharing my story. It prevented me from sharing the fullness, the richness, the complexity of it. We want to, often we want to brush it over and give you the nicely tied with the bow kind of story of it wasn't this wonderful. Perfection. I know it well. We dance and hide. I, I, I try and run away from her on a daily basis, but she catches me um, often. <laughs> yeah, right. And and we don't. And so here's something that a lot of moms will experience who've had a less than favorable birth experience is they're afraid that it's going to upset another mom. So th- this is really problematic. So here we are. We're in our trauma. We're isolated. It's having the impact that it's having on our system. It's deteriorating our health. It's compromising our capacity to relate to one another. And it's silencing us. And the thing that we actually need to do is give voice to it and be validated in it and share it in its fullness, not just the point of trauma, but the full story, which has the ups and the downs. And so that awoke in me, you know, what I actually found to be super fascinating was that I had, you know, that this was in my implicit memory bank, that I I actually was not fully conscious of the impact that my unresolved birth story and birth experience was having on my lived experience. And that I am sure (laughs) it's why I wrote the book and why I created this program, (laughs) because oftentimes we're just kind of living out what we need to resolve within, right? Right. We teach what we need to teach ourselves. Exactly. And so I was carrying this story of like, well, you know, I have a lot of information I have resolved and healed from my own traumas. But I had compartmentalized all of that and I didn't attach it to my births. And so I found it so fascinating as I went through it. And so the writing of that story, as I would write that story, and even today when I reread that story, I still feel more and more compassion coming through me that just elicits this well of grief in my heart, but not from a place of fear 
from a place of like tenderly just wanting to hold that part of me because I remember how intense that was for her. And so bringing that story to light and sharing that, you know, having planned a free birth, which is uh, a birth with with no attendant except for my um, former husband at the time, which is such a rebellious, radical, (laughs) courageous thing to do and and so opposed against to then suffer to the degrees that I did suffer and um, was so profoundly sick in that immediate postpartum. It was like they they were such a juxtaposition from one another that I was... I was living in this gap and I was so ashamed. Well, I'm so glad that you have shared your stories with others because it's, I think that's part of the healing that needs to happen is for everyone to understand that there's 50, 50 up and down and that this perfection mindset of everything is great and everything is all wonderful. And can't you just be happy or grateful with what you have is really kind of this root to this festering wound of that it's okay to have negative emotions and embrace them as well right? They're just as important as the positive ones. And it's all part of the human condition. And that if we can share with one another, instead of judging and ostracizing, there will be more love and there will be more connection and hopefully less symptoms of our trauma showing up in our everyday life. Yeah. And less judgment. If we could just, and this is again, going back to mindfulness, right? It's just, if the more we can cultivate that practice of being with and not needing to label it, you know, as it meaning something, because often we label it as it meaning something negative, most often. And especially in a stress response, we know we bias to the negative. So that's what we're going to hear. Right. But isn't that just a coping mechanism to keep us alive, right? That yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this is the, this is it. I, I know we're probably totally running out of time, but the, and so if I had like a, a closing message, it's to be in awe of our physiology and this amazing, amazing, energetic, physical, emotional, creative being that we are. And that it's, it's actually, our biology is actually wanting to work in favor for us to thrive. And a lot of these challenges that we experience is not because our biology is defaulting, but rather it's an indicator. It's giving us information. And that information, there's so much rich context in that information. And that information is, I need to pay attention here. Something is seriously out of balance, out of harmony. My system can't tolerate one more ounce a stress chemical. And so what am I going to do about that? Because we fight, we fight against our bodies. We hate, you know, this is what I come up against with so many moms. It's like, uh, my body failed me. And, and I'm sure you come up um, with this with your clientele, right? It's like, what's wrong with my body? I'm defective. No, the body is actually functioning at a high, high level, given the amount of stimuli and stress that you're... And it's trying to protect you. Right. It's trying to protect you. That's the thing that blows my mind. Even it, even even in our you know post traumatic stress responses, it's trying to protect you. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could just all give ourselves permission to be aware enough and then brave enough to raise our hands and say, "I can't take one more thing before the straw that broke the camel's back," and then we're out for the count for an undisclosed amount of time, right? A hundred percent. And what a what a valuable lesson to live for your children to teach them from day 
they want. And it's so brave. It is very brave. It's so brave. (laughs) (laughs) It's so brave because it's going to mean that you're, you will redefine how you exist in the world and people aren't going to like it. Well, you know, some of the best things I've done, people did not like. So <laughs> cheers to whiskey and a teacup. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. Oh. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Your workbook, and I do say workbook because it is something that you're not just going to read and think about. You're going to work through it. Hmm. It's called Healing After Birth, and you can find that on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also a fellow podcaster. What is your pod? What's your podcast called again? Healing after birth. <laughs> okay, there we go. So you're just trying to hammer this home so that you <laughs> remember. Um, and then you also do remote and one-on-one and group coaching sessions as well. Correct? Yeah, I have two um, counseling therapeutic counseling programs that um, are remote or in person, and you know, one is specific with. In, in combination with the book, which is the Healing After Birth program, uh, and that offers you six one-on-one sessions with me to kind of dive deeper into that process. And then I also have a foundational program that is for women in general, um, for soulfully inspired women. And that's another six-week program that is cultivating you know, the, the, the strong foundation so that you can begin to heal and take charge of your healing journey. And so those are two things that I do offer. Thank you for, for um, sharing that. Of course, of course. I have no doubt that there's going to be some listeners that want to take this a step further with you and dive into what you have birthed for them and their healing. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I just want to say that this is what I love to do. I find so much meaning in having these kinds of conversations. So I appreciate what you're doing in the world and that you're offering this as a free information and um, service to, to women and people all over. Thank you. Well, I opened Pandora's box and I can't not. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Yay to Pandora's box. Right. <laughs> Smile and nod, ladies, when you come up against it. I promise it's good if you just keep going with it. (laughs) Awesome. I just want to thank our listeners. I realize that this could have been a loaded episode for you, and I want to kind of send you out with some of Jennifer's words from her book. Your body did not fail you. You have done nothing wrong, and your symptoms are not a sign of weakness. Thank you for giving us your most valuable gift of your time and your attention And thank you for committing to changing the world to be a better place by starting with your own health and your own well-being. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.